Hi team, it's that time again where I have a conversation with another kick-ass person in business. Now full disclaimer, this is not an inspirational business podcast, but you might be inspired. These aren't all going to be success stories, but they are all going to be real stories because I'm not here for the enlightened, fluffy, feel-good version of people's journeys. I want the nitty gritty raw versions. If you're a business owner, freelancer, entrepreneur, creator, or someone with a side hustle, I can guarantee you'll be able to relate to something in this episode because this is what it's really like to take a chance and chase a dream. Don't forget to hit subscribe and slide into my DMs on Instagram if you want to chat. I'm Sean, and this is not an inspirational business podcast. My guest this week is Sharona, the founder of Humble Sampler. They are a social enterprise that provides support, market access, and visibility to small-scale food makers. They work with underrepresented minorities, primarily people from refugee, migrant, and First Nations backgrounds. We spoke about Sharona's background in community development, how important representation is in all industries, the impact businesses like hers have on the community, and the essence of food. We also touched on navigating grief while running a business, as well as COVID-forced business pivots, and that sometimes you really just need to take a step back to regroup and refocus. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm absolutely honored to have you here. Would you like to start off by introducing yourself and telling us what you do? Yes. Well, thank you, Sean, for having me here. My name's Sharona Parkinson, and I'm the founder of Humble Sampler. We're a social enterprise that supports small-scale food makers to thrive. And what does that actually mean? It means that we're providing market access and visibility opportunities for the food makers that we work with so that they can sell more products and get out to more customers. Alongside that, we do direct support with food makers. We're working on coaching and building tools and resources for people who are in our hampers, but also those that are emerging so that we can provide assistance that isn't really out there at the moment tailored to their specific needs. We work predominantly with people who are underrepresented in the food industry. So that's unfortunately most women, (laughs) but particularly um, people from refugee, migrant and First Nations backgrounds, women who are in rural areas. Like there's so many people that are making great products that are not out there in the mainstream and face so many barriers, internal as well as external. And we're really trying to listen to the food makers that we work with and see what we can do to co-create something better for them. I mean, so much, so many questions. (laughs) I guess I'd love to start with what's your background? What were you doing before this? Yeah, so my background's been in international and community development. So I've always been doing something where it's supporting other people to do what they do well. I guess a lot of the organisations I worked with were very empowering. So it was working with small-scale farmers in Southeast Africa and Asia. And so it wasn't telling them what to do because they already knew exactly what to do. It was enabling them to get more resources or share knowledge within farmers groups so that they were sharing for that local um, specific knowledge and upskilling as a community. My parents actually ran a business when I was younger. So I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit, but just never knew where to channel it. And I think for a long time, I... I've always loved food and I've always loved people and travel and I didn't know what it would look like. And then I returned back from living in the UK for five years and just knew that 
the time was right. I think it was around the end of 2016. And I just tried to look for what was an issue that I could come at and help solve an issue that, you know, people were experiencing. And so I, I think it was in 2017, I was working with a local organization here that works with people on low incomes. And I started to hear about the barriers that women entrepreneurs face, but it was women food maker entrepreneurs that really got my attention because food is such an integral part to life. To me, it felt like it was something important to work on, not just in terms of what it symbolizes, but because it's an area where people can easily access, go to if they're wanting to start a business, particularly if you're newly arrived or if you have small children, you might be able to start a business from home, but then there's all these hurdles that you have to jump through or, you know, that are blockading certain things. And so I started to speak to food makers and it sort of came from there. It didn't at all when I first imagined Humble Sampler look like how it is now. I mean, there's some elements, but um, yeah, it's certainly twisted and turned and morphed and yeah. As all good business and journeys do. Exactly, exactly. What was the catalyst for you to say, I want to take a step and be the person who controls how we support this community of food makers? Mm, that's a big question. I think I think what I saw was there was people working on, on how to upskill food entrepreneurs or provide a pathway, but there was no one really looking at the bigger issues and the bigger issues are registering your home kitchen or getting a registered kitchen and then also the fee structure for that. So every council in Australia, even in Victoria, has a different pricing structure. Some of them are $250 a year to register, some are $1,500. And it's these big things that can prevent someone if they're living on a low income from whether they can start or not start their food business, legally at least. And so for me, it was really looking at, well, if no one else is here doing this and if it's an area that I'm passionate about, why not? What else am I doing with my time? I mean, I was doing a lot, but yeah, it was kind of like that. This is it. This is the opportunity that I've been looking for and it's needed, I guess. Mm. I think it's so interesting because that's, I guess it's the equivalent of finding a gap in the market of, you know, how a product or service could fit in. But I feel like your view is a little broader as opposed to a gap in the market. It's a, where is there space to make something better? Yeah, which is a problem because then my business side (laughs) is like what product or service then can match this and that's where the difficulty for me has been because, yeah, I am looking at it at this different way and often it's at the cost to profits or, you know, my sanity because I'm trying to do all these things that improve but making improvements in systems takes time and it's annoying to be patient for me. I think most people struggle with patience at some level. Um, It's definitely not just you. Now, I can imagine as you're talking, all I can think about, and I know this is a terrible example, but all I can think about is when you're trying to find out information on a government website or a council website and how absolutely infuriating it is. And I imagine you spend a lot of time trying to find it. (laughs) Not anymore. It's like, yeah, the, the loops. 
that you can go on and it's like I've come back to the same spot. It's telling me I'm going to find this guidance document or this bit of information and yet I like five links and I'm back to where I started. So, And then it says down the bottom, was this helpful? (laughs) No. It was not helpful. Yeah, I, very much at the beginning, it was looking looking at that. And then we've had to start looking at how we can slowly address that and in partnership with councils, because obviously government, you know, they're trying to do their best as well. And it's just letting them know that, hey, this might not be the most helpful way to structure the website or the language that you're using isn't accessible for people who can't speak English. Yeah, it's it's very much about working with rather than against, which, you know, again, takes time. <laughs> no, understandable. Absolutely. So when you talk about food makers, what does that sort of entail? What does that encompass? Yeah, so that's food entrepreneurs. It's anyone that either wants to start a food business or that is currently doing a food business and so it's not really looking at the farming side it's more people who are making products or going into catering cakes and yeah I guess that's our niche and within that it's people who are underrepresented so we're all for you know making sure that when the requirements for registering food businesses are changed it meets everyone's needs But our focus, particularly when we're looking at other barriers, is particularly on, yeah, women, First Nations people and people from refugee and migrant backgrounds because we see that they face the most barriers. So you're helping other people overcome barriers for them to create their businesses or thrive in their businesses. What are some of the barriers that you've had to come up against? So one of the projects that I did at this community organisation was looking at what barriers do women face And I've faced many that were shown to be issues. So, you know, internal confidence, like, am I the right person to be doing this business? And, you know, once you get over that, you find it again eventually, (laughs) but also getting yourself out there with your idea, finding finance that isn't just your own, like who else is going to invest in my business is very much a question that I have. And, even though there are so many different funding opportunities for women-owned businesses, it doesn't seem like there's quite enough. And the types of businesses that they fund are quite tech-heavy, which, again, that's not where a lot of women are going. So that's an issue. Some of the biggest challenges I've had aren't even at all to do with the business. I lost my mum. She had ovarian cancer for three years and passed away in January 2020. And so that was sort of a year and a bit after I started Humble Sampler. And it was like, you know, I was wanting to push forward, but then, you know, I really had to look after my mum and myself at that time. And then losing her and then having the pandemic hit, it was just like everything kind of had to stop for me because questioned whether or not I wanted to be doing this anymore because I was just like, I think I lost a lot of the passion and drive and, you know, even zest for life for for about two months because I was just like, well, you know, this is shit. (laughs) Basically, this is shit. I've lost my mum and she was such an integral part of my life and so wise with all her words. And yeah, then 
I think when I started to come out of that really big grief fog, like I really think I've only started to come out of it the last six months, like the haze. Yeah, after a few months, I just came back to what's my purpose and what's my vision. And I realized there was nothing else I would rather be doing with my life. So, So that was a good thing. But yeah, COVID then was quite hard. And originally, I'd been seeing the gap of registered kitchen spaces. So that's where I was looking at being able to create a space and a community where food entrepreneurs would be able to come in, rent kitchen space, maybe two or three different businesses at the same time and have it as a subsidized fee structure. So those who could pay more did and those that couldn't would pay less. But then with COVID, it was like, this isn't going to be possible. (laughs) So I then had to work out, well, what's the next iteration of Humble Sampler? And that's when we started to look at discovery boxes. So we were going to do quarterly boxes where you could try different foods from different people, particularly that you wouldn't find elsewhere. So um, we've got amazing food makers that make delicious sambals, Ghanaian spice mixes, like First Nations tea maker, like just really beautiful products. And so it was trying to get some of the people I'd spoken to's products out into the world. And then we realized that maybe there was actually more, more that we could be doing. And that's how we landed at Gift Hampers. And is that where I want to be? I don't know. Because <laughs> for me, like, you know, I, I'm so proud of how the Gift Hampers look and what they contain, but that's not at all what I thought I would be doing. <laughs> so. Yeah, that is, I mean, that journey in itself is where you begin and where you are today is is significantly different. Circling back to sort of the juggling life and business and things that happen, I feel like this is something that we don't talk about a lot as women in business, probably everyone in business, but maybe particularly women in business is the roles that we take on within our business. I mean, we all say you wear every hat, you're the CEO, you're the janitor, you're the marketer, you're all of the things. But we do that quite a lot in our lives as well. And I think finding that balance of juggling everything that goes on in life just normally, let alone where you have to go through a massive grief of losing someone. What was your support system like around that time? Good question. So I had lots of a really great support network in terms of friends, like old and new. And I've lived out of Australia, I think, you know, 10 years, but I've got some really beautiful friends here that that were great and family. But with COVID hitting, not long after mum passed away, everyone else was then, you know, in survival mode. So I luckily had my partner and my dog (laughs) to, to really lean on a psychologist as well, because yeah, it was sort of like trying to navigate this really messy space. And I, I'd lost my dad 13 years beforehand. So I knew, I knew the grief of losing a parent, like it's not easy, but then to have, I guess, the ability to then connect with others really made it tough. And like, you know, we were lucky because when my mum passed away, we got to have a funeral and we got to have people there And so I guess that was a gift to be able to have that. But then grief and death doesn't just happen, you know, when someone dies and it doesn't just happen at the funeral. There's actually a really long time where you're trying to piece together what does my life now look like with this big 
person piece of my life gone. And because when I returned back from the UK, my mum found out she had ovarian cancer, I think a week after I arrived back, a lot of my time was spent with her trying to, you know, advocate for her at medical appointments. And so that was a big part of my life. And then it was like, well, what do I do now? Like, where do I channel my energy? And then once I felt better, I channeled a lot into Humble Sampler. And, you know, it was great for a distraction, but was it good for my health? Probably not. And I think, you know, I've been going in and out of like full bore, like, you know, foot off the pedal, burnout, probably since then, because that's very much how I'm hardwired. Like I I remember from when I was little, my mum sometimes would be like, Sharona, you need to take a day off. Like you're stressed out. And I'd be like, I cannot, like I absolutely will not. And I mean, like whose parent tells them they need a day off? I mean, so I think, I guess it's part of who I am and how much I care, but then I have to really start caring about myself a bit more. And I'm often writing myself little post-it notes, like, you know, if I won't look after myself, who will. And, you know, we spend, as you were talking about it, like women, we spend a lot of time looking after others or trying to wear too many hats or doing things, but it's like, how can we nourish ourselves as much as we do for other people, or other relationships, or yeah, it's, it's really tough. Absolutely. It, it definitely is. And I think that that process of sort of the the hard push or like that hustle and grind and then realizing that you actually can't maintain that. It's not sustainable. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's why we're talking today. Maybe I'm here to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, I know. It's like, you know, I'm in a marathon, not a sprint, but I'm not a runner, so I don't really understand. (laughs) Like that makes no sense to me. (laughs) You're over there like in the swimming pool like what? I'd love to talk back about sort of the the massive pivots that you had mm. within the business and how you've you've now doing, you know, sample boxes and things like that. So what is that? Obviously, COVID was the big sort of push to pivot again. Now that things are starting to ease off and the world is slowly coming back to normal, touch wood. <laughs> is there something in the works? I mean, the idea of the the kitchen space to me just sounds absolutely incredible. Is that something that you want to look back into or? Definitely. So along with COVID though, there was also the financial modeling. So I was like modeling, modeling and kitchens are expensive. Like this is why it's not being done or those that do it charge a high amount. <laughs> so yes, I would love for kitchens to come back in. We've found out a lot of kitchens um, in the community that we can link food makers to if they don't have the ability to register their home kitchen. So there's that, like utilising resources that are already available. And in the future, we'd love to be able to work with community organisations and councils to make them fit for purpose. So you need to have storage and things like that so people aren't having to lug their food in and out and pay for a second registration somewhere else to store their food. But I think the elements of the kitchen idea that we'd like to bring to life before we have a kitchen And so part of the idea of having a kitchen, it was inspired a bit by some kitchens overseas, one in particular, La Cocina. They're in San Francisco and I've spoken to one of the 
first staff members there who's now the executive director and she's so incredible in terms of being supportive and sharing information about you know what they're doing and how they might be able to assist so being able to provide incubation support that's actually more like implementation support so it's not you know an eight week here's your business basics and off you go it's more around doing one-on-one support as well as some group things with food entrepreneurs over a year, two years, so that they're able to really feel supported because I think that's one of the, the key things. And, you know, I belong to One Roof. I've had support from the Difference Incubator. I'm getting support from Swinburne Startup Studio. It's like every little bit that you have of other people outside that aren't just your family and friends that you can talk business to, that you can feel empowered and, you know, know that you're not the only person that's having this issue is just so important and that's what we'd love to do. And there's amazing organisations already doing things like that, Stepping Stones from Brotherhood of St Lawrence and Global Sisters. I guess where our focus is is really on like the food entrepreneurs and trying to bring in experts that, you know, speak to that. So food technologists, food branding specialists, because, you know, food is quite specific. The margins are low. What you need to be able to know and do is quite different to a marketing business. It's quite different to a clothing business. The food regulations are really high. The costs are high. It's an amazing industry and I don't know how anyone survives. (laughs) There's so much to know and to do and, yeah, and the prices are really high to, to get to where you need to be. So being able to provide that wraparound support is something that we're really excited to do. And I think coming back to what we first spoke about, which was the barriers, my really big passion for Humble Sampler is to be able to work on that systemic change. So um, working to make sure that the food regulations in Australia are streamlined so that no matter which council you go to, they're all singing from the same regulation book (laughs) because they're meant to be, but that's not currently how it happens. And to really make the pricing accessible, to make it easier for people who want to legitimise something that they're already doing and they're doing it well but might feel afraid to go to council or, um, yeah, the costs are prohibitive to allow them to do what they can do best. I'd love to know, and you sort of touched on it just a little bit before, this is such a powerful, impactful, purpose-driven, I guess, almost cause that you're working on. How do you juggle the business business cause and I know you did say it it can be quite hard and it feels like you're sort of dropping one of them off so how are you navigating that at the moment and trying to find that balance between the two yeah uh not well (laughs) and I think that comes down to like having the community development or international development background to me impact is pretty much everything so then you know, I'm wanting to give the most and do the most for the people that we're supporting. But then it's like, oh, actually, there's customers as well. And so now we're really trying to focus on how can we build up partnerships and relationships with corporates. And, you know, I've spent so long understanding the needs of the beneficiaries or like the food makers. Now it's time to look at 
the corporates who really wanting to get on board and do things that have a tangible impact like on social issues and environmental issues and it's like we can really connect them up and some of the beautiful stories that we've had from corporates are that they're you know buying direct from the food makers now and they're like raving about their products and that's exactly what we're wanting so it's like being able to focus on the business side actually provides the impact that we're wanting to do anyway so it's really trying to yeah I guess see how we can manage both and one of the things that I I think that I've really come to to the conclusion about is that profits aren't a bad thing like I, I think I've been working a lot on my money mindset of late and you know, coming from a community development background, you're really trying to like make sure that every last dollar is used effectively and, you know, there's no waste and it's very different to business. Like my my partner who's in IT, he talks about, you know, these like amazing business day outs and I'm like, I've never had, I paid for the Christmas like lunch that we had to have for <laughs> Christmas celebrations. But yeah, trying to look at, well, being able to have a margin on our gift hampers then provides income for us then to do more work with, you know, coaching the food entrepreneurs or doing the work that we need to do behind the scenes on the systems change part. But it's, you know, that's taken a while too because when I first started with the discovery boxes, it was like I was pretty much charging cost price and there was nothing. It's like, well, how am I meant to look after me? And then, you know, if I don't look after me, I'm not going to be able to look after anyone else for a very long time. Like, you know, it's not sustainable. So trying to really look at, yeah, sustainability, not just for the environment, but for the business as well as for myself. But I think that's so important. I think there's a lot of people who are really passionate about these massive causes, but can't see how to be the bridge between that and a business as well. And I think even just being in that space and navigating it and trying to work out how that works for you at the moment is sort of proof that it, it can be done. And like you said, for any profit that comes in allows you to then take further steps to support your food makers and, and do the work that you're wanting to do. So I guess it is all just more juggling. It, it is. And when I say profit, there's like, you know, maybe three or four years that we you know, are working towards getting the organization out of an organization deficit, but it's like, it's looking at the product's profit, not yet our profit. <laughs> Eesh, yep. It takes a long time. <laughs> One day, one day it'll get there and then it'll just click. I was going to ask you, and you again spoke about it briefly at the beginning, but what does food mean to you? I think for me, food, especially when I was younger, I would, like, I really love food. Like, I'm not talking about, you know, I think it's great. Like, I would wake up thinking, okay, what will I eat today? Like, I would plan my day around meals and I love cooking, but very early on, I realized I get too stressed out if I'm, you know, in charge of cooking for others. <laughs> so <laughs> I love to cook for people, but then, um, you know, and watch them eat eagerly. Like, <laughs> how do they find it? Good? it? Is it good? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it's not for me to be a chef. And that's probably why I admire the food entrepreneurs that we work with so much, because it's something I would love to be able to do, but I, I know I, I'm not cut out for it. It's also as I was saying, you know, a necessity. And when I was working with the, the farmers in the different organisations I worked with, 
they were just incredible. And it's like, we need to be treating food with so much more respect and the people that grow it, that make it, that produce it much more. Like we, we need to be celebrating them, paying them how much things are worth. And there's a lot of systems change work that's being done at the agricultural level. But then in terms of who makes your food, I don't think that there's as, as much. And we need to focus on all and that's where food comes in because it's just so important and integral to life. Yeah, it definitely is. I'm going to start with our rapid fire questions because they sort of all continue on for how we're speaking at the moment. What's something that surprised you about starting your business? How many people are willing to support you? when you start to put your ideas out there. I mean, you do get some naysayers or, you know, people that are a bit more cautious or risk averse and, you know, worried about you and your ideas. But I would say on the whole, yeah, it's just incredible the amount of supportive women in particular that are out there wanting to cheer you on, connect you to people. And yeah, it's really beautiful. Such a good answer. And it's actually one that quite a few people come out with as well, that they weren't expecting how many people would be cheering them on. I think you kind of expect, you know, friends and family and, and people like that to support you. But I think for me personally as well, one of the biggest things that I've noticed is the support networking Facebook groups, like One Roof and, you know, other communities like that is they look a little bit naff from the outside. (laughs) But I have met some of the most incredible you know, supportive business people in those spaces. And I just, I never would have expected to make the kinds of connections that I have with those people. So I wholeheartedly agree. And actually just while you're on that, I think one of the biggest surprises with Humble Sampler, like we think, oh, we're we're going to be supporting food makers, but the reciprocity is just incredible. The amount of the food entrepreneurs that want to link us to different people or, you know, share the work that we're doing, it's just really amazing. And yeah, I think business, it does require a certain type of person and then, you know, you get to meet all these beautiful people that are going to cheer you on and support you during tough times and good because <laughs> there's a lot of tough. <laughs> there is. And I mean, those people in those spaces know them as well as you do. Mm. And I think that's something that is quite valuable is it's almost like validation where you can say to someone, like I had a terrible day today or a week and this is how I'm feeling. And someone goes, I felt exactly like that yesterday or last week. And you're like, oh, okay. Because it can be really isolating and it can feel like you're the only person who's ever experienced these. It's like being a teenager. The person in the whole world who can feel like you realize that actually we're all, we're all feeling exactly the same way. (laughs) That is a terrible analogy. I'm sorry. I, I think I think you summed it up well. I don't know where that one came from. What is a fundamental value that you've woven throughout everything that you do and why is it important to you? I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was inclusion because, yeah, I guess we're really wanting to bring all different types of community members, people together. But then the second one that popped into my mind was love and 
I really, sometimes I lose that value when I'm, I'm not feeling the best, but a lot of what I do is about the love of people, food, the planet. And, you know, I really hope that people see that with Humble Sampler about the way that we speak about people, about the way that we represent the products, our business. We get a lot of feedback that our hampers, people can tell that there's so much love that's gone into it. And that just makes my heart sing because that is what we're all about. Like equality, justice, like, you know, love really is the thing that can conquer that. So amazing. You're the first person to say love. When I first realized that love was one of my values, I was like, oh, how embarrassing. (laughs) And then I've leaned into it a bit more because it was like, why am I embarrassed about love and loving people and life and it's such a universal emotion that everybody wants to feel in some capacity so i i think love is a incredible value what is your core motivator why do you keep showing up through the hard times and do what you do so i've been reflecting on this a, a fair bit and i think it's really about wanting to tackle injustice. So tackle injustice on the micro level, but then also on the macro. And that's very much what I've been doing like ever since I was little. My mum was deaf when I was growing up. She ended up getting a cochlear implant. But when I was really little, like I had to advocate for her at banks when people were being rude to her. And for me, it's really about wanting to make a stand with people on issues that, you know, are just not on or the treatment of people that is just not on. And yeah, that really is what puts fire in my belly and tips me into overdrive, but (laughs) it's what lights me up. Was there ever a time that you wanted to walk away and what stopped you? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I I mentioned about, you know, when my mum passed away and then I think Lately, it's been getting quite heavy for me in terms of balancing like my passion for Humble Sampler and then I'm really wanting to start a family and I've been struggling with fertility issues now for a year and a half and I keep getting told by people like doctors and gynecologists, just relax and, you know, that infuriates me. I mean, the other day the gynecologist was like, just relax and I was like, oh, you're speaking to me now, like... I can really relate to that kind of, you know, (laughs) half yelling. (laughs) Um, You're like, I am relaxed. (laughs) But yeah, it's trying to work out, well, you know, Humble Sampler has been a priority for so long. How do I make myself and, you know, the fertility journey the priority while still holding Humble Sampler? And I'm so grateful. I've got Gloria Martinez who's working with me. She's our head of policy and development and I had an operation in November and, you know, was out for a month. I couldn't drive and she took the hampers all into her house. And, you know, it's really amazing being able to work with someone that is willing to, you know, step up and take on the whole business when you're not able to. So, yeah, I guess I'm just really trusting more into like being able to share roles and that things will be okay and I don't have to keep pushing all the time. And I think it's something quite hard to to hand over the reins or loosen the reins even when you've put so much of your time and your energy and blood, sweat, tears, everything into something to sort of, to be okay to take that step slightly back to focus on, you know, your family and creating. And so I think 
I'm not quite there yet at the stage of being able to give anything up, but... (laughs) It takes a while, um, you know, and you have to keep remembering, like, oh, I'm giving this up, like, (laughs) step back a bit, step back. (laughs) You'll you'll get there, I'm sure. Just relax. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, just relax. What is your go-to remedy when you're having an off day? To lie down. I love lying down. I think it's so good. (laughs) I mean, you know, going out in nature, yes, but often really noticing and I probably don't notice until it's like you know way too late but just going right I think I need to ground lie down and just switch off because this is not like me being around is actually doing more harm than good no I I agree with that I also think naps are really underrated (laughs) yes yes I mean Sometimes with my head whirring, nap might not be possible, but, you know, a yoga nidra beforehand, knock yourself out for the nap. Yes. <laughs> What's one of the most important lessons you've learned since starting your business? So part of um, the research I did at the start was speaking to other business owners, not just food entrepreneurs, but other social enterprise owners and just a whole range of people. And someone was talking about how you are not your business. And I think we often get messaged that we are our business or there's messaging around that. That can be wonderful when things are going well, but you know we need to look after ourselves in order for the business to function. But when we see the business as a part of us or as ourselves, if the business isn't going well, that then means we're not going well. And, you know, it's it's pretty much that success or failure thing and you're putting it onto this entity that really is, it's out of your control whether or not it's going to succeed or fail because there's market forces involved, there's pandemics, there's so many different things and we can hold our business as important, but it's not us. So, I guess what has been giving me comfort lately, particularly when things have been hard, it's like, well, if Humble Sampler doesn't work out, that doesn't mean I've failed. It doesn't mean there's an issue. It just means that it wasn't the right time. And that then takes pressure off of me to then go, actually, I still want to work (laughs) work in this business and, you know, keep going. But it's just taking that identity out of it, allowing myself to feel like, you know, it's its own thing. I'm my own person and I have so many other parts of me that are important that aren't the business. Another guest had a similar answer to this question the Mm. other day And she was saying that she had to learn that anytime someone said no, they were saying no to the business. They weren't saying Mm. no to her personally. Yes. I completely understand that. I think we put, again, because we're putting so much of ourselves into what we're doing, it's really hard to detach from the business as an entity and I am me and that's okay to not be the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Gosh, that makes so much sense about the no, because it's, yeah, it's like you're putting yourself out there for the business. Mm -hmm. And so it can be feeling quite um, crushing when there is a no, but it's, yeah, it's not you that they're saying no to. They're saying no to the product or the service or not yet. Yeah. And not yet. Absolutely. What is the big dream? Mm. I think the big dream is that The pricing structure of, um, you know, councils is streamlined, it's accessible, that people who are talented, capable and passionate 
are able to start and grow a food business if they choose to and that there are so many more people from different backgrounds being able to sell their food in Australia. I used to work for the Darfur Australia Network, so Darfur is a part of um, Sudan, and the Darfuri barbecues were out of this world, like lamb that's marinated in lemon and different herbs and just like mouth-wateringly delicious. And there are quite a lot of people from Darfur in Australia and in Melbourne and Sydney in particular, and there's no real Darfuri restaurants. And they've been in Australia now for over 10 years. It's like, I'm pretty sure that there's people wanting to be able to do that, but you know, is it society? We're not welcoming enough for this new food cuisine to come out or is it because they can't access the kitchen spaces or is it because of the um, structural barriers in terms of pricing or is it, you know, the confidence? Who knows? But I guess looking at how we can enable more people to be able to share their contributions to our community would be amazing. Australia is such a a mixing pot or a melting pot of different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds and yes to all of the different kinds of food. Yeah, and and they've actually linked integration with food. So for what shows that a community has integrated is their availability of their cuisine in the marketplace. So, you know, Italians and Greeks, we had mass migrations and then all of a sudden, you know, there's Italian Greek food, Chinese food, Vietnamese. And then it's like, we need to have this influx of, we've got so many Latin American people, African people, like, you know, having that come to the fore would just be really showing that social inclusion and cohesion is happening in a large way rather than, you know, small sections of it. Yeah. Yeah. What is a resource tool or system that you use in your business that you couldn't live without? Say Google at the moment, which really, yuck. (laughs) And that's because, yeah, we have Gmail, we have Google Meet, And then all of our files are on there. And I mean, I really wish I didn't say that because I do not agree with their ethics whatsoever, but they seem to have it all, the package. It's hard to compete with the power that is. Yes. Like, "Mm, I wish I could get, no, that's it. (laughs) What is something that's happened in your business recently that you're proud of? I'm going to just say a really small but lovely thing. So last or this week. Gosh, time's flying. This week, I got to go out for dinner with some of the food entrepreneurs that are based in Melbourne that are part of our hampers. And it was just so, yeah, such a gift because we've been able to email and um, last year we were running a village online community. We sort of had to park that, but just being able to meet up with people who want to be in community with us and that want to support us as much as we're supporting them was just incredible. And I don't think that would happen if we were doing business in a different way. So I think, yeah, that speaks a lot to how we we do things at Humble Sampler. What is a tip about your industry that people might not know? That if you are going to have a food business, a kitchen needs to be registered to it. So a lot of people just think you register your business and that's it. But with a food business, you actually have to have a registered kitchen attached to your business or else it's not legal. And like we were talking earlier about the loops, (laughs) 
often that gets missed, particularly for people who are new arrivals or, you know, might not know people that are in the food industry. And it's unfortunately one of those things that can get missed and then people can get in trouble without realising that they're doing something wrong. Is a good tip. Do you have a place people could go or a resource people could use if they are thinking about starting a food business? Yes, they could contact me. I've got a um, one pager I can send them on um, what they need to do and great resources that they can use while looking at like nutrition panels, food safety supervisor program if they need it for their business. Yeah. And just like how to navigate council and things like that. So definitely happy for people to contact me and um, we can share that. I will make sure everything is linked in the description so that people can find you. And yeah, definitely that resource sounds invaluable for people in the space. So amazing and amazing your marketing skills coming into play there because that's certainly something I, I have no idea about or I'm learning. That's why they're leading questions as well. Say, <laughs> <laughs> What is one piece of advice you'd give to someone listening right now who's thinking about starting a business or right at the beginning of their business journey? So I've said a few of them, but I think one of the big things that I'm coming back to is that I don't need to do business the same way that everyone else does. Yeah, I really feel like we need to give ourselves permission that however you want to do business, as long as it's working for you, is okay. And, you know, some people don't understand the decisions that I've made and, you know, I'm learning constantly. I'm not doing everything right at all (laughs) by any means, but at least I'm doing it in the way that feels right for me. So like an example of that is, I am not a morning person. So for me, like starting at 10 or 11 and working a bit later really suits me. And if I try and do like 8 or 9 a.m. starts, it's it just doesn't bode well. And there's so many different things, you know, in your business, but really do stuff that works for you and then keep checking in because it might change over time. So it's just like, you know, is this working for me? Is it not? I don't know. So, yeah, it's really just leaning into that. You're your own boss. So be kind to yourself. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. And it's something that for me personally, in the last probably six months, I've really stepped into, I don't have to do what other people are doing, or I don't have to do it a certain way. And if people don't understand why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them, that's okay. And it's really easy to fall into the trap. I mean, we live in a world that is based on social media. Like we all spend so much time there and it's so easy to fall into the trap of, you know, comparing yourself to other people. And when it comes to business, there really isn't a one size fits all. It's just like life. You have to do what works for you and you have to find what works for you. And sometimes that means making mistakes and you know, we've all done it. We've done lots of them. We've made mistakes. We've fallen flat on our face. We've done all of those things. And sometimes you just have to. But I think that is such an important piece of advice that find what works for you and and do business your way. Yeah. And then don't explain it. Like you don't need to explain why you've made certain choices. And yeah, you can learn if you've made the mistakes, but it's, you don't need to explain. It's okay. Absolutely. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Another little piece of gold? Well, maybe. (laughs) 
So another thing I was really thinking about before coming on here is the different seasons of business. And I'm not talking about like Christmas, Easter and sale seasons, but you know, just like been doing a bit of reading about period tracking. So, you know, you might have a season or seasons within your cycle where you're out. And then when you're a bit more introspective, you'll also have those in your business. And it's important to have both. So you might have ones where like six months, a year or a week where you're really out there speaking to people, really drumming up business and support, And then you need time to come in and look at your financials, look at your strategy, just shy away from people because you don't have the energy, whatever it is, but just, you know, know that that's okay. Like you don't have to be doing all these things out of your business all the time and you don't have to be doing things inside your business all the time. It's working out what the balance is for you and what time in your life or, you know, the year or whatever is right for you to be doing the right thing because otherwise you're sort of punishing yourself or just exhausting yourself or, you know, doing things that don't feel right often doesn't lead to good outcomes. So it's just listening into yourself, but also, you know, taking a bit of that grace and being really kind to yourself sometimes where, you know, you thought you were going to be sitting down and doing your financials, but really you're like, I want to chat to people and <laughs> or, or the other way around, just really, yeah, leaning into what feels right. I love that. And I think it is the perfect way to finish our recording today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I will, of course, make sure everything is linked in the description. Everyone can find you. Everyone can order one of your incredible discovery boxes and your hampers and support the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. This has been yeah, so enjoyable. I'm really glad we got to connect. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to share your own story or tell us what you think of this one, feel free to head over to Instagram and slide into my DMs. By the way, you're not going to want to miss next week's episode. I know I say this every time, but seriously, my next guest is kick-ass.